Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thanks as always for the introduction. And hey, thanks for the shout out. As you guys might have heard during the Genesis Invitational, uh, Jim Nance shouted out to the story I did on Tony Finau's grandfather, his late grandfather, who saw him play one time in his PGA Tour career, and it was at Riviera six years ago. And I was fortunate to interview Tony and the grandfather and Tony's father, Kalepi, as well. So many cool moments. And obviously, the reason why 40 years ago, Sione is the name of the grandfather, the reason why he came to America and decided to come here from the Tongan Islands was to give opportunities to his grandkids. That was a big purpose. And so I think you might have heard that with Jim Nance's um, discussion of my story yesterday on the arrow and Fina made a, a big run at the Genesis Invitational. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. And uh, yeah, it was crazy. I emailed it out to Nance and a few other people and just wanted to make sure that story got out there because it's great to give credit to where credit's due, especially when it's a grandparent who has inspired someone like Tony Finau. Anyway, let's get to it this week. We got Paul Azinger, of course, amazing Ryder Cup captain for the American team 2008. This guy's a major winner, 12-time winner on PGA Tour. And this guy's going to be hosting basically this week at Concession. Of course, this is a golf course that is in his backyard. He lives really close to it. He's going to be calling the action on NBC Golf Channel. What a unique moment. So we get into what this course is all about. This is stuff you... May not hear many other places. This is really good insight from Paul Eisinger. Before we get to that, let's talk about Encore Golf. And they have a wonderful Elixir golf ball. Check it out. It's a tour-level golf ball. You can get it for $49.99, limited time only, and you get 10% off with my promo code B Clubhouse, the letter B and then Clubhouse. That's five bucks off. So think about it, $45, you get two dozen golf balls. Not a bad deal. Check it out. This has been highly rated by Golf Digest the last couple years. Um, EncoreGolf.com. They're huge all over social media as well, at EncoreGolf. Let's get to it here. Paul Azinger on Beyond the Clubhouse. Well, I am pleased to be joined by my next guest. He's 12-time PGA Tour winner and 93 PGA Championship winner, Paul Azinger. He's also the 2008 U.S. Ryder Cup captain. Oh, and you see him on NBC and Golf Channel as the lead analyst especially during the Florida swing. How you doing, Paul? What's going on? Well, I'm not packing for Mexico City today. I know that um, the World Golf Championship is staying in Florida at concession, and I'm pretty excited we get to do that golf tournament right here in my hometown. And uh, I'm about to start a big Florida swing after a pretty good West Coast, and I get to start sleeping on my own pillow, so that's a pretty good start. Well, speaking of the concession hosting this week, what does that mean to you? Well, I think everybody locally that's played the golf course feel that it's the most difficult thing we've ever seen. So we can't wait. I mean, we got the top 71 players in the world coming here to play a golf course that most people think is impossible. You know, I think Bryson shot eight under maybe in the NCAAs here to win. 
but um, it's a good golf course. It's built on a huge scale. A jack, it's 7,700 yards long. Jack and Nicholas and Tony Jacklin built it together. It's uh, called a concession. You know, the greatest show of sportsmanship, I suppose, was Jack conceding a putt to Tony Jacklin at a Ryder Cup. And they model that whole club's concept. Uh, it's kind of a Ryder Cup theme, but the course itself is pretty difficult. I mean, there's at least six very dangerous shots at concession. And, you know, that's all you can ask for. I, I mean, at Augusta, there's probably four or five pretty dangerous shots. Uh, the greens are contoured like the Augusta a little bit, and things are going to run off, and they don't stop until they end up in a bad spot. So it's just going to – it's kind of a mystery. I, I don't – I think if the wind doesn't blow that much, they're going to get to hit 10 sand wedges. So I, I see low scores personally, and uh, I just think those guys are going to show up. 20 of them are going to be really, really hot. So when you say low scores, are we talking about like close to 18, 20 under par? Is that what we're looking at to win the week? Well, only if the wind doesn't blow. But see, the thing is, the golf course is so drastic and so severe that if the wind does blow, I mean, it'll be single digits under par. It, it's it's a scary course. I mean, I try to look at it from, you know, maybe like Ches Revy or Kisner's driving distance and then try to look at it from Rory McIlroy or Bryson or DJ's driving distance and I see two really completely different golf courses you know uh, the big hitters are going to be able to fly some of those holes maybe only have two or three dangerous shots where Ches Revy and those other guys are going to have the five or six really scary shots and the thing is that you know at Augusta a lot of times it's the iron into 12 or the second shot at 13 or 15 but at concession it's going to be with the driver that's all this the real scares are going to be with the driver yes well, for, for you, though, you're going to be calling the shots there for NBC Golf Channel. Like, and it's your course. Like, what is that going to feel like? Well, I don't know yet. <laughs> I, I, just, I think everybody wants to know what they're going to shoot. I, it's going to be cool to have the, the best in the world show up at this place. And um, I think they're going to fall in love with it personally. It's in incredible shape. That's the best part. You know, you get caught by surprise and have five weeks to prepare for a tour event. That's not easy, but I think they pulled it off. It's going to look great on TV. As soon as the producer, Tommy Roy, saw it, he said, oh, yeah, we have to get the airplane in for this tournament. So uh, it's not a blimp, but there will be a plane flying around giving us aerial shots. That'll be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, just are there some guys that you think it might favor at this point? Anybody come to mind? We think about windy condition players, guys from Texas, any of that kind of stuff? or. I think it's a big hitter's paradise, truthfully. Uh, not that they can't get in trouble here, but I think that if you're one of those big carry guys, you take the water out of play on three holes. Uh, so we'll see what happens. You know, I'll go back to a Ches Reeve just because he doesn't hit it far. I could see him going around and not missing a single fairway and maybe striking an advantage. But I feel like the winner will come out of here without a penalty stroke, um, and that – That'll be pretty hard to do on this golf course, but it's you're able to do it. Speaking of penalty strokes, my friend, um, what you are apparently a decent amount over par in your career playing at that course. Tell us, my audience, uh, what your overall score is. Oh, I don't know. I keep telling people I'm about five or six hundred over, but I could be exaggerating. It might be eight hundred over. I mean, it's pretty. <laughs> It's hard. Uh, I just think that if you don't carry it a certain distance, 
you know, uh, it's just really hard. <laughs> That's all I can say. But again, I, like I said, I looked at it from Bryson's eyes and Rory's eyes, and I just saw where those guys were capable of flying a lot of the trouble that, you know, 70% of the field can't carry. We'll see. I, there might be a great disparity, you know, from the top to the bottom. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned Bryson, and I think about kind of where he's at in the season right now. What are your thoughts and expectations as we go forward, as we get closer to Augusta with him? Well, you know, Bryson has said he's done trying to get bigger. So that's something. I don't know how sustainable what he is doing is. You know, I mean, it's hard to go that hard and for any great length of time. I think the older you are, the more you know it. But, you know, every golfer gets injured. So, of course, if he does get hurt, it's going to be because he overdid the working out and all that stuff. But I don't believe that's the case. I don't think that would be fair. Uh, I just think he's going to be super confident. He knows Augusta. He should be the favorite here, really, um, because he won NCAA's at concession. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but I've th- I always like Bryson's chances. Yes. Well, you know what? Like, as we look at the PGA Tour now, golf betting, professional golf betting has become so popular. I know you yourself, you're a big poker player. You're unbelievable playing poker. So what are kind of your overall thoughts as this gets more popular? What's that? Just overall betting on golf and what we're seeing oh, with all that. I, I'm not the huge fan of it yet. I just see that it's a can of worms. So, I mean, I'm more old school about it. I get the interest in gambling on golf. I too, I know in five states it's perfectly legal, but it would just be really awful if people started yelling in backswings and stuff like that to win a $100 bet. Um, I don't know. I don't like it, but. I don't think there's any stopping it. I don't think we'll go the other direction and, and uh, eliminate it. Um, there's money involved there somewhere. But could it bring more people into the game in, in some way there too? Because it is still kind of a niche sport, you know? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, look, I never thought the PJ Tour would drive their brand to China, but they did. And they, they said they were going to do it, and they did it. And I think that the gambling thing, you know, it's probably here to stay. And uh, – you know, the guys that run the game, I think the tour, the powers to be are visionaries and they're seeing way out ahead of where I would be. You know, I'm day to day guy about the tour and what's going on at the moment, but they have to be 10, 15 years out front. So I'm sure they've thought about this. Um, personally, I don't like the gambling aspect of that. Even though it's a gambling game, it may bring more people to the sport, though. And, uh, you know, they, they're more visionaries than I am. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm trying, I'm thinking the last time you and I uh, saw each other was in Florida. It was at Bay Hill. Remember that was the last event that finished on a Sunday before the whole COVID thing took over. Yeah. And I remember that Sunday morning, you and I were talking, it was coming off the heels of the Honda Classic and some of the comments you had made about the European tour and, you know, Tommy Fleetwood going for his win. And, and I'm curious, like, how do you look back? We're, we're almost a year removed now. How do you kind of you know, look back on, on, on that time? When I said that tour, those comments, yes. Oh, I don't. I mean, it's true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, Tommy's here for a reason. You know, look, these guys choke for two things: cash and prestige. And the tour has the most of both. And you can go all the way back to Tony Jacklin. You know, um, he knew that 
he had to win in the United States. That was just the way it was. And it's still the same way today. And, uh, you know, that's a great tour. Those guys are phenomenal players. It wasn't a shot at them as much as it was, a, you know, kind of a rah-rah Ryder Cup USA. You can win on that tour and you can win on the world, but you got to win here. You know, that's what that was. It, I wasn't trying to be malicious. I was just trying to be candid about it. And, uh, you know, money and prestige, that's all you choke for. And this is the most of both. So what was wrong with that? <laughs> sure. I understood. Well, I like that you just said candid because, you know, the guy you replaced, if it's possible to replace him, Johnny Miller, was so candid as, as an analyst and, and so praised for that. You jump into this role, NBC Golf Channel, you're a year, you know, over a year into it. What is it like working with Dan Hicks and some of these legends, Mike Tirico, Jimmy Roberts? How is that for you? Those guys are brilliant. They really are brilliant. I uh, love Dan Hicks. He's never in a bad mood. Keeps everybody light. Uh, rehearsals are fantastic with Hicks. He's a professional all the way through. I mean, Hicks is the voice of all of Michael Phelps' gold medals. And Tommy Roy, the producer, and Tommy Randolph are in there directing that thing. And, you know, they've won all kinds of Emmys. But uh, Jimmy Roberts, Tarico, Hicks, it's unbelievable. And then you've got, you know, the legends of Coke and Malt be kind of in there. And now the news guy's coming out. Um, I, I think that the telecast, the team gets along pretty well. I mean, I was obviously the elephant in the room there for a while, especially having kept the Fox deal for that extra year um, to do the U.S. Open. I'm so relieved that that's gone away. Uh, but I'm very comfortable now. And, you know, it's hard to be candid this day and age. I mean, every word out of your mouth, you're kind of on eggshells. And, um, you know, once it leaves your lips, you can't grab it and pull it back. It's live TV. You do the best you can. And I love doing it. It's nerve wracking at times. It can be a stressful environment at times, but it's just golf. And I like watching guys to see if they can pull it off or not. I'm thrilled that I get to work with the professional. I mean, it's the best team you could ever imagine, really. The, from cameraman to the guys in the compound, the, the folks in the truck. It's impressive that a golf tournament can get pulled off. Um, and you think of the miles and miles of cable. Uh, it's a miracle every week, I think. So I I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. You guys are going to cover, of course, the Ryder Cup as we look ahead. It was canceled or postponed last year. You have so much history with the Ryder Cup and, of course, being the captain. But what comes to mind? What's a story to you uh, that comes to mind, Zinger, about the Ryder Cup that really is important for golf fans to know? Well, Europe dominates it for some reason, and that thing, that's the real story. We're in America. Can the United States come together and pull together? And, you know, they're better players, I think, uh, for the most part. But when it comes to head-to-head -to -head battle, you know, uh, the Europeans, they get a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, and then all of a sudden they're on, they're on the next level, you know. I've always said this about the Ryder Cup, though. For us, it's kind of in our head. We think about it. We want to win it. But for them, it's truly in their blood. I mean, they're bonded by nationality. They play in small groups, the Englishmen, the Spaniards, the Swedes. And then if you get a mix-up, you know, like a Darren Clark and Lee Westwood, they're best friends. It's just they have it. They have a edge on us, I think. And it's, even if it's a 1% edge, I mean, Vegas builds casinos on a 1% advantage. 
So whatever that is, it's always a challenge, even at home for the U.S. team. Um, there's plenty of times in, in all this European domination where they did actually have the best players. But right now, it'd be hard to make an argument that this U.S. team shouldn't be able to uh, take these guys. But it's like the spirit of Seve and the ghost of Seve or whatever these guys drum up, the chip on their shoulder. Uh, it's never easy. Just never is. Yeah. Well, you know, Once you just, for you just them, it's been easy. <laughs> well, you know what? You mentioned this, the, the ghost of Seve, they drum this up. You know what? Like, I, I'm an American journalist and, and I see what they did at 2012 at Medina and the spirit of Seve was the first one played since he passed away. And they came back from just as big of a, of a, a deficit as you guys had at Brookline. It was on the road, though. And, and in some ways, and I look at other American golf fans, I don't feel like American golf fans give European team enough credit for that 2012 comeback. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't know if they are even considering whether they get credit or whatever. The fact is they came back and uh... – yeah, that was a pretty big upset, but it was after Seve's passing. Jose Maria was the captain. It was kind of almost – it was almost storybook, really, yeah. unless you were the American side. And they probably got caught off guard. They got behind early, and then the reality hit that, you know, this could actually go the other way. And it did, and in a landslide. So, yeah, good for them. The U.S. team uh, – come back and done it so now they're e they're even in that regard we'll see what happens at whistling straights I, I don't you know it's it's weird to me that you would take a Ryder cup to a Lynx course and say you know we're going to take you guys down over here when you've lost nine of the last 12 or whatever it is but we're going to the Lynx course at whistling straights to try to take these guys down and that's not a gimme either well, you make a great point. The PGA champions at Whistling Straits, none of them are Americans, Paul. You know, Kyber. I mean. I didn't know that. I just know that it's it's just uh, very linksy looking. It might not play linksy because of the conditions, but sure looks it. I think they probably feel more at home than we would. Mm. Well, Steve Stricker has a, a big task ahead of him. And what are you looking forward to as we see him put his team together? You know the players, the cast of characters, and, um, you know, what, what do you see there? I really don't have a clue. Honestly, they, they I think they're only going to take six, and then they're going to pick six. So the picking six players, to me, I'd rather see them make it on their own merit, um, maybe pick three or four. Um, but look, if, if you're seventh, you're probably getting picked. If you're eighth, you're probably getting picked. Nine will probably get picked. And then they'll, you know, maybe three guys, um, that aren't in the top nine. So I really think you may say you're picking six, but in reality, how are you going to jump over the seven, eighth, and ninth? If Patrick Reed's seventh, eighth, and ninth or something like that, then that will be some real interesting uh, drama right there, won't it? See if they jump over him or if they grab him because he's so great or if they hate him. We'll see. Well, it's <laughs> I don't know, it's I don't know how they feel about him in general. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in 2016, I, I don't know anyone else who could have stopped Roy McIlroy in that lead singles match on Sunday. That was unreal stuff. You know what I mean? Like it would have, 
it was amazing. So, so my question to you about Reed is like his talent is unbelievable. What do you make of what's happened with him recently and kind of what, like you said, everyone's kind of, kind of, um, they have to take everything into account, right? I mean, I think Reed did probably everything that was technically correct at San Diego, but optically it didn't look that great. He's got to be on his best behavior. And, um, but I think, you know, he doesn't care. He's like sticking his chest out saying, come and get me. If you don't like me, I don't care. <laughs> so he's an interesting cat. Um, I really like the way he plays watching him hit balls. is just blows your mind. And he has a great work ethic. He's isolated himself. He's on an Island out there. Kind of he's got his family and, um, yeah, I think he makes golf interesting for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it good for the game to have a different kind of personality? Like there's a lot of players out there that, you know, would maybe be called vanilla. Yeah, I don't know if uh, – I mean, the way Patrick Reed, you know, the controversial part, I'm sure he'd hate, he hates that. But, you know, he did, did it to himself with the sand thing and there's just – it's just the way it is, but yeah, golf need villains are not bad. I mean, uh, yeah, villains are good. So I don't think he minds playing villain role. The question is, do the players, you know, well, I don't, I'm not sure what the players really truly think. And, you know, if he's seventh, eighth or ninth or something and you got six picks and you don't pick him, that's, that's, that's sends a message. So there's going to be some drama there if Reed doesn't get in the top six. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at other young players here. Tony Finau, of course, had a big run at the Genesis at the LA Open. Didn't get it done. He shot 64 on Sunday, but again, didn't win. What is your thought? Is it glass half full? Is it half empty on Tony Finau? Shot 64. I think he just needs to be a little more situationally kind of clutch. I mean, he had a putt to win. That's all you can ask for. And he didn't get it. He had to put the tie there in the second playoff hole, but he shot 64. I mean, no one even talked about Finau. When his name popped up, you know, I didn't watch it yesterday, but it's like, Finau, wow, what did he shoot? 64, wow. Uh, so, yeah, it's easy to criticize, but it's the way you do it. You know, if you're three shots ahead and finish second, then you start talking about Finau. All I know is that Max Homa missed that short putt, and Finau had a putt to win 15 minutes later. And if, if that – if Fino makes that putt, can you imagine the emotion that Max Holmes feels today versus where he is now <laughs> emotionally? Uh, what a difference. But I think Fino comes out with confidence and Max Holmes comes out with confidence um, big time. So, uh, you know, it's funny how the tour can be. Some guys would miss that putt that Homa missed, still win the tournament, and then think, I'm not a good pressure putter. I'm not a good clutch putter. And they'd be down on themselves and beat themselves up. I mean, that's the kind of personality types that you deal with on the PGA tour. Um, it, it's crazy. And, uh, but I don't think Max Homa's like that in any capacity. And Tony Finau's not like that. And that's why I think they'll just keep going and going, cash and checks, big checks. Finau will win eventually. It's got to be just a little more opportunistic when those, you know, moments arise. It's a finite amount of time. You think you're going to be doing this, you know, 20 years and keep getting chances every week because he gets them. But it's a finite amount of shots at this, and he's just got to be a little more clutch, you know, at the moment. Yes. Well, I like what you said about, about uh, Max Homa needing to just get over that and not let it dwell. His wife told him, forgive quickly. That's her, was her advice to him that Sunday morning. Forgive yourself for mistakes. 
And that's what he thought about after he missed the short putt. He thought about his wife's advice, and that helped him in the playoff. Really cool stuff. I mean, it's just amazing when that comes together, Paul. Um, I got to ask you as we get look towards the Masters, what are some players that are interesting to you as we look ahead to the Masters? Bryson is interesting, and I, I wonder about DJ. You know, is this just going to be another DJ Masters because he's so good? Uh, can Rory complete his Grand Slam? That's a big question, too. Uh, it should be a great Masters, e- even without fans. Again, I-, I hope the fans are here by, by then. Now they're saying we're going to wear masks all of 2022 or up into 2022, so it may never end. I don't know. But uh, maybe they'll let them out there. Hopefully the Patriots can come out. Um, hopefully the fans can come out in the Florida swing eventually. This concession tournament, this um, World Golf Championship is going to have 500 people here. It's awful. I hate it. And uh, – it changes the whole dynamic and all in the effort to keep people safe, which I, we all get that. So um, maybe hopefully this time will pass uh, sooner rather than later and we can get back to normal. You're saying that you hate not having as many fans, right? And just the energy oh, yeah. that you need as a competitor, right? Just as anything. I mean, you want to go watch guys play basketball in a, in a, with no fans, you know, I think, yeah, it's the, it's not electric. There's no electricity. Yes. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, Roy McIlroy real quick. You mentioned him and, and going for the career Grand Slam. Looking for another major, it's hard to believe it's been almost seven years since he's won a major. What do you think he needs to do to get back in that on that train? Beats me. I, I mean, he's so good. I think he's my favorite guy to watch on the range, hit balls, and <laughs> – he just is. I, I just can't believe how good he hits it. But, you know, now he's probably he's on the head of the policy board or the player advisory counselor. I think that's what it is. And, you know, I mean, I think when a guy, he's already made history. Now he's starting to want to make some policy. And I just don't know that you should do both. I mean, if you want to, you want to make history, you make history. If you want to make policy, wait till you're done trying to make history. It's just going to be hard to balance because you only have a finite amount of time or, or, or what? It's just like the priority. It's like that's the – he's prioritizing policy if he's going to be the head of the pack. I wouldn't prioritize that. I would make that last. <laughs> I would want to keep making history with my sticks if I was him. So it's not saying you can't do both. Some guys get on that pack and they lead the way and still play great golf. Um, but I, personally, I think it's just a distraction, a sign of maturity and age, you know, that he is where he is. He's in a different place if he's thinking at all about PGA Tour policy. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, here, we'll wrap up here in the next four minutes or so. I just wanted to ask you about um, us at home, us amateurs. When we warm up, we're, we're chipping. You're a great bunker player from all the bunker shots you hit at Ryder Cups. Um, when we're warming up for our round, pre-round, we get to the course. What should we be doing in bunkers to get that confidence? <laughs> well, stretch if you're warming up. But if you're hitting bunker shots, I mean uh... – I don't know, you can picture a dollar bill sitting up, your ball sitting right in the middle of a dollar bill, and you just want to get the whole dollar bill to come up in the air like that. I mean, that's the best way to do it. And the way to do that is to get the club to have enough speed to completely slide under the bill without hitting it. That's how I would do it. I'd picture a dollar bill. Mm. What about chipping? That's been a big strength of yours over the years. As we prepare and hit a few chips, what's the key there? Hit a few different types, hit different clubs. What are you thinking? 
just feel and touch. I mean, really, if you, whatever, you know, if you're going to try to make clean contact, you should just make good clean contact when you're chipping, you know, how to chip ball back hands forward and just try to get good speed. I mean, that's always the key feel touch like you're rolling it to a hula hoop. Interesting analogy. We get from there, of course, you have to go on the putting greens. John Rom has told me getting a sense for the speed of the greens is the biggest thing for amateurs before they go. What are some other keys that you think as we warm up on the greens? It's all speed, really. It's, everything is predicated on speed. You know, I think great players assume two things. They assume they're aimed correctly, and then they assume that they're going to hit at the right speed. Um, when they're putting poorly, then they can only assume one or the other. Uh, so I'd say work on speed and you have a putter, you can aim, you can assume your aim correctly, I think. And then all that's left is whether or not you read it correctly. Is, are there little uh, tips, little aids that we can use as amateur players just to, to really get more dialed in with that? I don't know. I mean, I always used to practice as something above ground a little bit, which helped. Um, it's easier to practice to something like a bottle of water. You could hit that all day versus trying to fit it in the hole, which is kind of restrictive feeling. Hmm. How long were your warmups usually when you got pre tournament round? How long were those typically? Uh, I'd like to get to the course about an hour and 20 before my tea time and get going, start about an hour ahead, give myself plenty of time and I always finished off with putts and chips and then would walk down to the tee. And on that range, what do we need to be thinking, like, uh, in order to get with with our, our swings and stuff? Like, mentally, w what position do we need to get to? I'm not even sure what that means. Well, okay. Um, How do we get confidence on the range is what I'm saying. Well, I don't know. You hit a couple good ones. I mean, my, my thing when I was hitting it decent, I would just go to the range to get loose. That's all I ever tried to do. I mean, if you're going there to – get instruction or to have something to work on that's something different but if I'm going before I go to play golf I just want to get loose mm. well as we wrap up here I got to ask you about uh, put yourself in the mind of an amateur maybe somebody over at that club there at the concession when we're on the 18th hole and we're trying to break 80 for the first time you know we put so much pressure on ourselves what do we need to be thinking what's the right attitude to have you got to make par to break 80 well, if I had to do it, I would say I've parred this hole 50 times or whatever. I, I don't know. It's self-belief. You got to kind of sometimes you got to talk yourself into it, um, especially if you know exactly how you stand like that. Then that becomes the challenge. You're in the same situation as a tour player for different stakes. It's your own mental battle. And uh, you just got to win the battle, man. Just fight it out. Break. If you if that's a goal, what you just can't let anything stop you from making par. Don't just hit it. Hit it good. Hit it. Clutch it up. Last question for you, my friend. Uh, Dave Fielke on Twitter asked, would love to learn more from Paul on how he and Payne became great friends in the early days on tour? Because of our wives, actually. Um, and that's generally the way it is with any of the tour players. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, we all get to know each other out on the course. But, like, I knew Payne was good, and all I wanted to do was beat Payne. But then when our wives became friends, then, then slowly but surely we became friends. That's awesome. Well, hey, it's been great getting to know you. Of course, 2018, we met at Shoal Creek. Remember the U.S. Women's Open? 
Um, it's it's been a fun ride so far. Great great friendship. Good, good to get to know you again more here on the podcast, Paul. And uh, good luck this week at the concession. Yeah, thanks. Good luck to you too. Appreciate it, Garrett. All right, my thanks. A big time shout out to Paul Azinger there for joining me here. And listen, he's a guy, as we mentioned, to go back about three years to the Women's Open at Shoal Creek. And we spent a lot of good time talking about the local caddies there that week. Actually, that's how I met him. As I said, I went straight up to him. He'd never met me in my life. And I said, Paul, there's six local caddies this week at the course. And he says, really? Are you six local? What is your name and what is your phone number? And let's stay in contact. And I, I love this information. It was hilarious. I was doing research for Fox at the time. But it was just so cool. He saw, I guess, some of the assertiveness I had. I had made the rounds and talked to a lot of the local caddies and talked to the caddy masters and had dug into that. But really, you know, Paul is, is so much passion in what he does you can you can hear it he, he takes a side of an argument <laughs> for better or worse and uh, that's just who he is he's sticking to his guns as Paul Azinger so hope you enjoyed it there's gonna be so many good videos to come out of this you heard some of his comments uh, about the Ryder Cup about some of these young players looking ahead the European tour Tommy Fleetwood Patrick Reed so many good comments here to get into those videos will be on social media at Garrett Johnston or excuse me at Johnston Golf on Twitter and at Beyond Clubhouse. And then on Instagram, check it out at Gira Johnston Golf as well as at Beyond Clubhouse Podcast. Thanks for catching up today, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.